If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the third chapter of the book of Galatians. And you will recall we've been studying this book of the Bible together carefully, taking it apart verse by verse as the Apostle Paul is moving to a crescendo, explaining that the corruption that has come into the church, the corruption of the Judaizers who are suggesting that you can't be a Christian and a follower of Jesus unless you fulfill the law of Moses. He says, stop, stop. Justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. Stop. And so he picks up now at the climax of this in chapter 3, verse 10. And we read, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You know what? I'm going to read this in the, in the ESV. We've changed to the, in, the English Standard Version. And I was reverting back to how I've memorized this in the New International Version. Forgive me for that. Old habits die hard. I'm going to read it. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So far the reading of God's Word. Good people go to heaven. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard someone say, this is really, I think, an American creed? Good people go to heaven. Why wouldn't they? I hear it often. For 30 years, I've done evangelism. I've, I've shared uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. And when you talk to people about the destination of heaven, and they consider the question of how you get there, it is not uncommon, is it, for our neighbors and our friends to say, well, if you're good, you go to heaven, and the quality of your life will be rewarded, and the bulk of people are good, so they'll go to heaven, right? Have you ever heard that? I think it's understandable that people feel this way because we live in a society where this reward system is just woven into the fabric all around us. When you go to work and you do a good job, you get rewarded, right? And children, teenagers, when you obey your parents and you do what they ask you to do, they're pleased with you and you get rewarded, right? And in school, students, what do we teach you? You study hard. You work hard and it'll pay off and you'll get good grades 
in the end. And so there is woven into the fabric of the society around us this idea that hardworking people who rely on their best efforts to do what is right will get to heaven. And I ask people, maybe you have, do you think you will go to heaven when you die? And the common answer is, I hope so. I think so. I've tried my hardest. I've done my best. I have a sense of right and wrong, and I try and do what's right. I hope so. And what's going on in, in, the, in the minds of the people around you is this, that they believe God grades on a curve. Do you know what I mean by that? Grading on a curve means, uh, God, you get a, a C or a B, certainly a passing grade if you're in the middle of the class. And there are some who may be lagging and some who are a little ahead. But me, I'm kind of in the middle of the pack, maybe better than most, not as good as others, but I'm in the middle of the pack, and so God grades on a curve. I'm surely going to get into heaven because I rely on my good works. And I want to say to you today that if you're someone who believes that you can be good enough I want to challenge the way you think about this very carefully based on the passage of Scripture that we have read that is before us today. Because the Bible says that there are real problems with thinking this way. And if you're here today and you've just assumed all your life that you're going to make it to heaven because you can rely on your good works, I want you to listen carefully. Our text in verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. The religion of self-reliance is a common religion. It is the religion of most people. And I will rely on what I believe is are the works of God's law, and I will try and do them, and that will satisfy God, and will pun- he'll punch my ticket to get into heaven uh, because I have relied on my works. And the, the text, it says very deeply, it says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And then Paul says clearly, It is evident No one is justified before God by the law. And what did we see earlier when we read from the larger catechism? Remember I pointed out three words that start with P. When we understand what the the catechism is just paraphrasing our text and the Old Testament text from which it is quoted, it's just paraphrasing what what are the demands of the moral law of God? They are these, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, okay? Personal. Your dad can't do it for you. Some of you had very godly fathers, but your dad's godliness doesn't do it for you. Perfect. God is light. In him there is no darkness, okay? Do you understand this? God is light. 
and pure and holy. In fact, the angels don't just call God holy. What do they call him? Holy, holy, holy. And the requirement is perfect obedience. And not just perfect on Tuesday morning, but again, again on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, perpetual obedience. The framers of the catechism catch this. Why? Because Paul quotes, actually, from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. You have to do them or you will be cursed. And what you have here in this passage is the, I call it, the comprehensive elimination of fallen humanity from gaining entrance into heaven by relying on their own performance. Do you see? I'm just trying to be faithful to the text here. It may be politically incorrect. It may go against the trend and the tide of our culture, but at least let us be faithful to the text of the Bible and to the whole Bible that teaches this. Who does the curse of God fall on? Everyone and anyone who does not do everything that God commands. And what the law of God shows us is our own poverty in religion by self-reliance. It's commonly said that there are three uses of the law of God. And one use, of course, is to lay out how we should live as Christians, and that's right and true. The law of God is a good guideline for what is moral and proper. And, of course, it it applies in a general way. Governments can understand, I think, uh, you should have laws against stealing and you should have laws against the taking of innocent human life. Well, we get these things from the law of God. But John Calvin writes, and the church has understood for centuries, that the first use of the law of God, what Calvin calls the first use of the law, is that the law functions as a mirror And I look into the holy law of God, and you know what it shows me? It shows me my blemishes. It shows me my defects. It shows me my failures. The law of God brings me up short, Paul says, in order to drive me to Christ. We'll get to that in next year as we we come back to Galatians. The law of God is a taskmaster, taskmaster and a schoolteacher to drive me to Christ. That's the first use of the law, and that's how Paul is using it here. So I want you to understand, this is a question about God. Who is God? God is pure. Did you know that? God is perfect. Did you know that? God is holy, and he will not admit any contamination into his presence. Some of you work in the medical field, and in that operating room, before you go into the operating room, what do you have to do? What must you do? You must scrub down. You must uh, get rid of all contamination on your hands and on your feet and cover your hair and make sure that that operating room is sterile. And if I'm tromping around the farmyard and stepping in the manure and I'm coming along and I see the hospital and I want to walk into your operating room, what are you going to do? You're going to throw me out. You're going to bar the door. 
You're not going to let me in that operating room with filth. It would be a terrible mistake. It would be improper. It would be wrong to do so. Well, that's just a hint, just a tiny hint of why God bars contamination into his presence. And what is that contamination? It's sin, sin, moral filth, moral corruption, the transgressions of his law. And I talk to people, and uh, you know, this is not original with me, uh, Ray Comfort in his evangelism technique, The Way of the Master, he, he's discipled lots of Christian people how to talk to their non-Christian friends who, who assume that they're going to heaven because they are good people. And I've used this, and I've said to folks, okay, um, I understand you believe in the goodness, essential goodness of your character, but could I just ask you a question? If we compare your life with the law of God, uh, I'm wondering, have you ever used the name of Jesus or God in a derogatory fashion? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain, ever? And they'll say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, a lot of times. Well, what does that make you? It makes you a blasphemer. Did you know that? Wow. I'm curious. Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Stolen something, you know, even something little. Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Well, yes, yes, uh, probably over the course of my life, sure. Well, what does that make you if you've taken things that didn't belong to you? Mm, Makes me a thief. I'm wondering... Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever tried to deceive someone? You didn't tell the whole truth or you covered something up or you exaggerated in some way that really wasn't very honest. Have you ever done that? Oh, yeah, a lot of times. Well, then by definition, what does that make you? Makes me a liar. And so... I say, well, you know, I'm not here to insult you, but just by your own conversation with me, what you've just told me is that you're a blasphemer, you're a thief and a liar, and that's just three of the ten. Shall we go through the rest of them? (laughs) No, no thanks. I don't think anybody really claims to be perfect. But the vast measure of humanity thinks they are good enough. Andy Stanley has written an interesting book. It's called How Good is Good Enough? And he explores all of these issues that lie under the American system of just thinking that they are fine, upstanding, patriotic, all-American boys and girls, and that that should satisfy God, whoever they think God is. And in our text today, We learn to the contrary. No one is justified by reliance upon the law. You know the prophecy. We'll read it Christmas Eve from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Right? Romans 3 verse 10 quotes from the Psalms and it says... There is no one righteous, no, not one. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as you go to work, you will see that people sin. And as you go to school, you will observe your classmates. And they are not the paragons of honesty and kindness and goodness. And even in your own family, you will see tension and strife and sin. And of course, it's easy to look outward, but what is most important for you and for me today is to look inward. And as I look inward, I'm the first in line to see selfishness and pride and lust and greed and arrogance. All who, res- who rely on observing the law are under a curse. My good is not good enough, and neither is yours. So what is the solution to our problem? What is the solution? And we have it in this very passage, verse 13. Look at verse 13. Memorize verse 13. Follow with me here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that is verse 13 there. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy one more time. In the earlier verse, he was quoting from the, the, the passage in Deuteronomy that, uh, you know, we have not kept. Cursed is everyone who does not do all the law. Now he goes to a different passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and he pulls this up. In Deuteronomy 21:23, and we read, "For a man, for a hanged man, is cursed by God." And of course, that passage, Deuteronomy 21, is all about someone who has committed a capital crime, right? If you commit a capital crime, you deserve capital punishment. And the criminal, it's talking about the criminal who has done such a despicable or dastardly deed that it is, it is called by God and understood by humanity as a capital crime. It, it deserves execution. That's what it's talking about. And in the old westerns, you remember the noose that was hanging, and, uh, and that was the sign of execution. Or you see uh, the electric chair, and that's the sign of execution. <clears throat> And in his comments on this passage, Kevin DeYoung, he says, listen, we all understand, don't we? There is a sense of indignation that arises inside of us when a a man murders an innocent young woman, that he is worthy of death. There is an outrage inside of us that a capital crime deserves capital punishment. We do understand that. Whatever your view socially of capital punishment is, surely you would understand that this is a despicable and heinous crime worthy of serious and severe execution of punishment. And then Kevin DeYoung says, Paul does the strangest thing. He applies it to Jesus. What? The despicable one hung on the tree is Jesus. The sinless 
Son of God? Wait, how can this be? He goes so far as to say Christ became a curse for us. It's very interesting. As you read through the New Testament, and I hope all of us are reading through the New Testament, and the Old Testament, of course, but learning as you read through the New Testament, see those times. Have, be alert for the times when they talk about Jesus and they mention the tree. Have you ever noticed that? There, there are times you read through the book of Acts, and in Acts 5, verse 30, the, the, the preacher says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. It was a, it was a wooden cross nailed together, and yet, and yet it was a tree. It was wood. Why did they say, by hanging him on a tree? Or in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, do you know that beautiful verse? He himself bore our sins in his body. Where? On the tree. And Paul is telling us that the unthinkable has happened, that the spotless, sinless Son of God is the one accursed, like the despicable criminal who should be executed. But how can this be? And it is because within the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son made an agreement And they agreed together that the spotless, sinless, perfect Son of God would descend into the muck and the filth and the evil of this world, and He would come to be our Savior. I put in your bulletin, you don't need to read it now, but I put in a text from Johnny Erickson for you to take home and to read where she describes in in, in a powerful and disturbing way what happened on that day as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And she says that the nails in his hands and nails driven through his feet was just a warm-up for the growing dread that fell upon Jesus as he began to hang there. For now, she says, an unearthly foul odor begins to waft, not around his nose, but his heart, and he feels dirty for the first time. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The living excrement from our souls begins to cover him. And then God the Father is aroused in his righteousness and in his wrath. And God the Father looks down upon the one he loves, but who now, the one, she says, who was the apple of his eye, has turned to rot. And the Father is aroused. And he says, Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated. You have lied You have stolen. You have dishonored your parents. You have corrupted little children. You have gloried in yourself rather than in me. Your wickedness has now become a stench in my nostrils. 
And I loathe these things in you. Disgust, the Father says. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not now feel my wrath? And the Son is innocent. He knows he is innocent. The Father knows he is innocent. But they have bound themselves in an agreement in the covenant of redemption, that the Son would come and he would call our sins upon himself. And this is why these next two words at the end of verse 13 are so important. Why I I would suggest you memorize verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For me, for you, and it is applied personally to you. Oh, Martin Luther was changed by these words for us. He writes in his own commentary on the book of Galatians, he says that We are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ calls our sins upon himself, and for them he died on the cross. Luther's writing, I can imagine him writing furiously. He bore the sins of Paul, who was a a murderer and a persecutor and a blasphemer against the church. He bore the sins of Peter, who betrayed him He bore the sins of King David who was an adulterer and a murderer and who caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the Lord God. He bore my sins. He bore your sins. And so we read, clearly it is evident no one will be justified by observing the law. He quotes from Habakkuk. He goes way back. It's so interesting. You see, because then Paul is saying to us, how does what he did on the cross become mine? And he tells us several times how it becomes mine, how it becomes yours. And what is his answer? If it's not reliance on the law, what is the answer? Do you know? It is by faith. Faith. And he points out, do you see it in verse 12? For the law is not of faith. And he says the contrast is marked. The contrast is clear. The law is not of faith. If your religion is a religion of self-reliance, that is not faith. And he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which contrasts the wicked with the righteous. And that great verse, for the just will live by faith. And he even in this passage, if you study it carefully, he even says, so, if you want to have your religion be a religion of self-reliance, go ahead. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5 tells you what God expects of you. You want to try it that way? Go ahead. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God, 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So we maintain that a man is justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law shall no one be justified. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, as elders in this church, we do membership interviews with people as they come in, and and people are converted in this church. That's a wonderful thing when people... They come to faith in the life of our church. And, but sometimes we hear this. We hear them say, you know, I grew up in a church. But I never heard the gospel. I learned that Christianity was being nice and trying harder. And don't do drugs and don't get pregnant. And go on a mission trip and do a good deed. That's what my church taught me. I wish I had been there when the Apostle Paul was preaching in Acts 13, 38 and 39. When Paul preached, and may this be true of the North Shore Community Church, true in each of our homes, true in each of our small groups, Paul says, let it be known to you, therefore. And so it is with everybody in this room today. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes, there it is, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. There it is. Faith in Jesus Christ. And I ask you today, now, where do you stand? Because maybe, maybe today is the day that you will finally admit that your good is not good enough. And you'll get in line behind me. (laughs) Okay? And that you will finally acknowledge your need of him. And you will no more rely on your works of the law anymore to rely upon them as the means of salvation. You see, good people good in quotation marks. Good people don't go to heaven. People who recognize their need of Christ and who look to the alien, external righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover their sins and to receive His righteousness, they are the ones who are admitted into the pollution-free atmosphere of heaven. If you look around this room and you get the stories of the people seated in front and in back of you, there are a lot of people here that you might judge, well, they were good people. You don't know, but you think they're good. And you know what? There's people in this room, if you got to know them, you say, these are bad people. We have those too. A lot of them. 
But what do we have in common? What do we have in common? We all know that our good is not good enough. And we all know that we look to the Savior who became a curse for us. And we believe. And faith unites us to Him. And we live. So I'm going to invite you to bow your head right now and to pray with me. And I'm going to invite maybe some of you for the first time to believe in Jesus Christ and to let go of your own self-salvation. I'm going to invite you to pray with me and give you the opportunity to know that you are going to heaven. Let us pray together now. Dear Lord Jesus, it's now clear to me that when you died, you died for my sins, which are many. In my thoughts, in my words, and in my deeds, I have not personally and perfectly and perpetually kept your law. I have not. And now that's very clear to me. And I look outside of myself, and I look to you. I look upon the cross where you died, and I am humbled in my spirit. I am broken inside. And so I look to you, and I acknowledge that your blood is sufficient to cover my sins. And I thank you. We, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you that God the Son called us his friends and welcomes us. And we want to leave, leave this place changed by the cross, made new, free from the burden of failure. And we want you to give us that spirit, the spirit of God, the promised spirit that comes by faith, that makes us to love you and to walk in your ways. That's what we want. As we come now to the Lord's table, we want you to nourish us and strengthen us to live the life of love that you desire for us. We thank you that if we are with Jesus, if we are in Christ, we can be certain that heaven is our destiny. And we ask you to give us that assurance of faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.